Welcome to Leadership Lessons. I'm Todd Gray, the Executive Director for the Kentucky Baptist Convention. Leadership Lessons is a program where we talk to faithful leaders who are making an impact for the gospel. Our guest is Dr. Tom Askell, who is one of the three announced candidates for the SBC president to be elected in Anaheim. And uh, Tom is coming from, to us from Florida via Teams meeting. Tom, thank you for joining us on Leadership Lessons. Well, my joy to be with you, Todd. Thanks for this invitation. Yeah, we appreciate you taking the time. So let's just jump right in. Take a couple of minutes and tell us about yourself and your ministry. Well, I'm the youngest of six children born in Beaumont, Texas. Grew up there, went to Texas A&M and started pastoring a church my senior year there. Met my wife there. Don and I got married, moved to Dallas where I served a church as an assistant pastor. Um, started doing Ph.D. work after I graduated with the MDiv from Southwestern and moved out to Cape Coral, Florida, 1986. This is actually today is my 36th anniversary from my first sermon that I preached here at Grace Baptist Church uh, 36 years ago. Tom, and, somebody, ought to, somebody ought to echo that and say, amen, 36 years in one ministry setting is absolutely incredible. So hats off to you and, and may your tribe increase. Well, I tell you, it's a testimony to the congregation's grace and patience. I mean, they, this has been a wonderful church. There's only one charter member left uh, in our congregation. She's 103 and one of the dearest saints you'll ever know. Um, but God's been good to me. We, Don and I have been married 42 years. We have six kids, 15 grandkids, and my oldest daughter works in a church in College Station. She's not married, but the, the rest of them are right here. And we get to see our kids and grandkids every Sunday and Wednesday. They're all faithful, active in the church. And uh, it's just, a, it's incredible. Uh, we just regularly stop and reflect on God's kindness and mercy to us. Uh, we don't deserve this. And it's all his grace. So we're enjoying it. The, the church has been so kind uh, to me. So that's, that's the most significant thing about me, I think, is that um, I've been here 36 years and got a big family that I really enjoy. Tom, I, I sent these questions ahead of time, same ones that I, that I asked Robin and and, uh, and Bart as well. But I didn't ask this question. So do you are you still a Texan even after being gone 36 years from Texas? Yes, I, I do go back and renew my passport periodically just in case. But, you know, living here with Ron DeSantis, I'm feeling pretty good. So <laughs> he's been all right. I pastored a military church for 11 years, and, and there were lots of Texans who were part of that, that church. They had the greatest state pride of any state represented in our congregation. <laughs> Everybody there was. Yeah, it can be a little obnoxious. If, well, you said it, not me. Um, so appreciate your openness to being considered for SBC president. Why are you open to run, uh, being considered for that office? Well, you know, it's uh, people have talked to me about it off and on over the years, and I've always just laughed. And, and you know, I have kind of a standard answer that I'd use is, uh, man, I'd rather be beaten with a bag of pennies than to do that. And <laughs> don't you like me? Why are you doing this? Uh, so it was never really serious. Got maybe got serious a couple of times, but nothing very uh, lasted long. But then this year, starting in January, February, uh, people began to talk to me more seriously. Men I respect, you know, people I really respect. My wife. She said, well, you know, I'm open to it if we can be convinced. And then uh, our church has elders and leadership. We have some lay elders and staff elders, fellow pastors. And and the first time it really came very serious, I think was maybe early March. I can't recall. And uh, they all said no. God, God's been so good to our congregation. We're going through a lot of wonderful blessings. But those blessings bring real trials and challenges. And, and we need all hands on deck. That's what was said. So I was, that was fine with me. And then about a week later, a couple of these guys or three or four of them actually came back to me 
and they wanted to meet with me on a conference call. And they said, look, we, we will fly down and talk to your church leaders if it would help. And so one of them zoomed in and talked to our um, leadership. They agreed to take some time and pray about it, think about it. Every one of those guys came back one by one without consulting with each other, saying, we think that God would have you do this and see what happens. And my wife said, sure. So for me, that's kind of how I discern God's will and uh, men I trust. And I'm willing to do it because I really, I love the SBC. I appreciate the things that God's done through the SBC. Um, I, I really sometimes am astounded when I stop and re reflect. Um, we're not perfect. We got all kinds of problems. We've had them from the beginning. But God has used the SBC to get the gospel around the world. And we've sent missionaries through our through the IMB. And uh, we've, you know, we've adopted unreached people groups. And I've just seen a lot of good the SBC. So it matters. And, and I'm concerned about some things going on right now. And uh, those concerns have risen to a level that have just kind of wedded with the people asking me to do it. That I said, OK, I'll, I'll do this. And I don't know if God wants me to be president or not, but uh, I want to seize the opportunity to try to speak as simply and clearly as I can uh, during these weeks leading up to the convention. Well, thank you for your your willingness, and we're gonna. I want to talk about those challenges, but before we get to that, um, what is it about your unique ministry experience that you think could be helpful to the SBC right right now? Well, uh, I'm just clocking my 44th year in pastoral ministry, 36 here at the same church. I I've said for years I think the SBC needs to be led by a pastor. I think there's something about looking at a congregation week in and week out knowing that you're going to give an account before God, Hebrews 13, 17 says, that uh, for the, the souls under your care, there's a stewardship there that's weighty. I wouldn't trade it for the world. It's a great privilege. But I, I think having that pastoral experience uh, can be useful. Uh, God's taught me a lot. I mean, again, I've seen the best and the worst in people. I've seen it in my own heart. Um, and I've seen what God can do by the power of his gospel. The, you know, he transformed me which is an amazing, an amazing thing that, that he would do that. And I see it working in my family, see it working in the congregation. So I have great confidence in the gospel. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not at all hesitant to believe what the scripture says God is able to do through the power of a crucified and risen Savior. And I know I'm not unique in that. I'm not suggesting it. But uh, I just think those combination of things and his providence and putting me together at this stage of my life, that uh, if I have anything that's useful, I want to offer it in uh, service to the churches known as Southern Baptist. Yeah, amen. So um, if we were to ask the folks at your church, those elders especially, what they would say your greatest strengths as a leader, what would they, what would they tell us? Oh, my. Well, I'd probably be ashamed of what they tell you. So, uh, uh, no, I don't know. That, I think um, I'm not flappable. You know, I'm not easily knocked off course. So God's given me a real, again, it's all his grace, but he's given me the ability to persevere. I'm a plotter. And so I can kind of stay in the saddle and, you know, things don't, things don't undermine me too easily. And uh, part of the benefit, I think, of a long-term ministry in the same church is, man, some of those things that in the immediate moment look like they're going to be a tsunami, you know, they, they turn out just being a little ripple. And so over time, you see that and you think, okay, we can weather this. This is hard, but God's faithful. So I, I think just seeing the faithfulness of God over time and granting me uh, the ability to plod and to, to not deviate from what I'm convinced is the right course. 
Tom, every leader is in the middle of his own sanctification. And so if you were thinking about an area where you need to, you need to grow as a leader, what would you, what would you list? Yeah, well, man, I've got to do with my own heart every day. People ask me, what's the greatest challenge of, of being a pastor? And it, it hadn't changed in 44 years. It's dealing with my own heart. Uh, yeah. I, I've got to keep my heart tender before God. Um, and so I just, I'm constantly in need of uh, being more attentive to the spirit, more sensitive to the word. Um, I can get impatient with, with people. You know, sometimes I think I know what the answer is before they finish the question. And, and mm-hmm. uh you know, some and people just need to hear you, have you hear their questions. And so I, I've got to work on that. My wife's helpful. She's so kind to me and <laughs> helping me with that. So uh, Lord, Lord gives us what we need. Amen. 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 So you've been, uh, not only your pastor, not only are you in a great conservative church, but it is a Southern Baptist church and you're Southern Baptist. You've alluded to that. So what does it mean, Tom, to be, uh, to be, a, I shared before we started that if we asked that question 50 years ago, we'd probably all answered about the same way today. It may not be as, as um, we may not be as unified in our answer. What does it mean to be a Southern Baptist from your perspective? Yeah, well, a Southern Baptist technically is a member of a Southern Baptist church. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's the simplest answer. But a Southern Baptist church is a church that voluntarily cooperates with other churches around the cause of missions and evangelism, benevolent ministries. And we've been doing this since 1845. And some of those ministries have expanded and contracted over that time. But the number one thing that has brought us together and kept us together is missions. Uh, We believe, and I've seen it in practice in our own church, my own life, we can do more together than we can do uh, individually as a church. I mean, there are some wonderful churches in the world that can do a lot by virtue of their strength, size, resources, but that's not true for most churches. Most of our churches simply cannot do what we can do collectively if they were left to themselves. And the, the International Mission Board, it's second to none. I've been on fields where, you know, I've seen missionaries that are struggling to stay on the field because of support. And I've watched even our own missionaries that we've sent through the IMB during uh, national tragedies in their countries. There are protocols in place that our people were cared for. We We had immediate access to them through the network of the IMB. That was, it's just astounding. I mean, we had one of our men arrested uh, in a, uh, a Muslim country and it, to, to see the resources kicked in through the network and thoughtfulness of years and years investment from the International Mission Board, uh, I, I couldn't trade it for anything. So Southern Baptists see that, we unite for that. It's voluntarily, we're Baptist, we're independent, we're autonomous, every church is. And yet we see the value of cooperation for these good causes. We are independent. We are autonomous. We're two Baptists are gathered in one place. There'll be at least three opinions. And that's, that's just great <laughs> that's that's right. about us. You couldn't have said any better about who we are as a, as a people. So I think you've already started alluding to the answer to the next question. Uh, three greatest strengths of the SBC, my guess is one of them might be the, inter- our, our, in, the International Mission Board. Uh, but if not, what would you say are those three? Yeah, absolutely. International Mission Board, hands down. Uh, The organization, the structure, it's amazing. I I remember going to the first time to Richmond when Jerry Rankin uh, was uh, leading the IMB. And man, I had my guns loaded, you know, because I'm independent, autonomous guy. You know, I'm Baptist Polity Tom. And so I just was wanting to really hear from him. Before I could ask my questions, he laid out here's the way we do it. So the IMB doesn't send missionaries, churches send missionaries. We facilitate that. And so I'm checking off all my questions. And by the time he finished his opening talk, I didn't have any questions left. Uh, And 
again, I've seen it. The missionaries we've sent, the missionaries we support in direct kind of connection through the IMB, uh, that's tops. Disaster relief. I mean, we're down here where hurricanes crisscross our state pretty regularly. And so I've seen those yellow shirts and we got people in our church that have worn those yellow shirts and the Southern Baptists are there before the Red Cross gets there. They're there after the Red Cross leaves. I've watched the Red Cross take cues and learn from our disaster relief. It's second to none. So I'm grateful for that. We have a structure and a setup for theological education that's wonderful. You know, we've, we've done some great work in theological education, especially if you look over our history of that. And, you know, six seminaries, we educate one third of all the seminary students in the United States. That's amazing. That's amazing. So we've got some, some real gifts that God's given to us and, and we need to steward those gifts to the best of our ability. Yeah, that's, that's great. Uh, so let's get the other side of the question. What do you see as the three greatest challenges that are facing the SBC today? Yeah, well, I, I think we have them. Part One of them is just what we're all facing in our individual lives, every institution, and that are the cultural, that's the cultural winds that are blowing right now. The, these winds of, uh, of ideologies, intersectionality and, and critical race theory, critical theory, queer theory, radical feminism, it's the, it's the air we breathe. It's the air that my grandkids are growing up breathing. And nobody escapes the impact of it. If you're not intentionally thinking about it and resisting it, they're going to infiltrate. And I think we've seen infiltrate at points in the SBC. I, I don't say that with any uh, delight. In fact, it's heartbreaking to me. I've had conversations with some of our leadership and some of our entities about my concerns across the years. So I think those cultural um waves and winds that are blowing is one of our problems as a result of that and how those questions and concerns from churches haven't always been handled well i think we've got a serious trust issue issue right now uh, and trust is the connective tissue of our convention of churches and everything we do cooperation runs along those channels of trust and if trust is broken it's hard to cooperate. And so the cooperative program, which is an ingenious mechanism of funding missions, I mean, it's ingenious, but the cooperative program is going to be hurt uh, by lack of trust. And so I think we've got to rebuild trust. And then I would say a, a, another one's maybe a kind of a combination of accountability and transparency. We, we need accountability and we have it, but it needs to be heightened and well-guarded from the churches to our entities and institutions. The, the churches own the institutions and entities, and yet sometimes the people who are leading those institutions and entities kind of feel like you're infringing upon their territory as a church if you make inquiries about things. And our trustee system is supposed to represent the churches and hold those entities in trust for the churches, and yet sometimes, and not all, I've talked to some good trustees, but I've talked to a lot of trustees that strike me that they, it's almost like they think they're the PR department of the entity or the institution, and that's not their job. So I think those things just, we have to get them out in the light, have honest conversations, see what's wrong, where they are, are problems, and then fix them. I, I don't think anything's beyond us repairing, but it's gonna, we're gonna have to face some honest questions in order to do it. 
Yeah, that's that's uh, that's that's super helpful. And so I'm hearing you say cultural wins, not only what the culture is doing, but when it infiltrates maybe mm-hmm. some of our own decision making or ministry practice life. Uh, trust issue ministry runs at the speed of trust. When uh, I mean, you've been right. in church 36 years. If you've ever had times when trust was low at your church, yeah. you know that everything comes to a halt. And then accountability um, as well, with especially with with trustees. Um, so I want to ask how you would address those as president, but especially on the trust part and the mm-hmm. trustee part. Do you have any thoughts on strengthening that um, yeah. trustee relationship, Thomas? So I think I'm hearing you say my understanding of a trustee is they represent. So trustees from Kentucky, they represent Kentucky Baptist to the organization, and then That's the organization right. back to Kentucky Baptist. But they they have to represent our concerns. If we have trustees, they have to carry the collective concerns or praise and appreciation. Mm-hmm of Kentucky Baptist to the organization. What are your thoughts on strengthening our our trustees? Yeah, it's an accountability issue, and we all need accountability. Every Christian does, every church does, every institution does. And the way Southern Baptists have have said we're going to hold our institutions accountable is through a trustee system. I think from talking to trustees, I, I gather that many of them have been thrown into a responsibility for which they've not been properly prepared or equipped. So I believe we need to examine how do we train trustees? What processes are employed? Now, the institution has to do some training because you have to get up to speed. There needs to be orientation about how the institution functions. But we need to have some independent training as well. Here's what a trustee is, because there's fiduciary responsibilities. There's even some legal liability that uh, goes with serving as a trustee. And those things need to be understood by the people that will uh, be in those positions. So I think we need a complete a re-examination of the trustee system. And maybe we need to have fewer meetings and longer meetings, or, or I don't know. But we, we need to figure out how much does it cost to have a trustee for each of our institutions? How much is an institution paying from its budget to have one trustee, given all the meetings, all the things that have to be done? Let's look at the whole deal, see if we can't do it better. In terms of just general uh, trustworthiness, uh, one of the things I've been doing as a pastor for years, and, and if I were to become president, I would just have an amplified uh, platform from which to do it, is to call for, for truth and trust and transparency. That our institutions and agencies should not be afraid of transparency. Uh, I've heard stories. I don't know if they're true. I haven't had time or resources to investigate them individually, but I've heard some some pretty uh, alarming stories about some of our institutions, some of our agencies, and how trustees have have uh, made financial arrangements with outgoing executives and and other things. We just we need forensic audits. One of the things that I would call for is a baseline forensic audit of every one of our institutions and agencies so that we see where do we stand. And then there probably needs to be, you know, maybe every seven or eight years or something like that. I know we have annual audits, but I've talked to enough accountants as well to understand that there's ways that you can get kind of in patterns of doing things that if you're not careful, you become accustomed to doing things that aren't best practices that aren't helpful. So I want to encourage all of our entities, all of our agencies, all the employees within them to remember that they work for the churches. And so the churches should uh, feel free to raise questions and to feel like that they're going to be treated with respect in getting those legitimate questions answered. Several years ago, Jason Allen at Midwestern Seminary uh, wrote an article in which he said, look, if you got a question, man, just write, write the uh, entity leaders. We'll answer you. Well, I think he 
was hopeful, more hopeful than the reality is uh, suggests is, is actually the case, because I've talked to, to churches, pastors, hundreds of letters that have been sent that have gone unanswered and are been given a pro forma answer, you know, cut and paste answer that everybody gets and their, their questions have been ignored. So we just need to recover that. And so I would love to plead and, and whether I win as president or not, I'm going to continue to sound this note. We need transparency. If we don't have that, trust will never be rebuilt. And uh, I, I would think every honest Christian wouldn't be afraid of transparency. You know, I served under Paul Chitwood for seven years. And then when he went to the International Mission Board, I'm in the seat that he was in at that time. And uh, one of the great things he did for us, uh, Kentucky Baptist Convention is a great state convention, but he helped us to reorient our focus that we're created by churches for churches to help churches. The churches Amen. don't exist for us. We exist for the churches. Amen. And, and um, I know he has that mindset at IMB. He, he understands fully it is the, it's the Southern Baptist Church's International Mission Board. But th that's a, it's just an important mindset for those of us who are in, in those positions. Thank you, Tom. So, um, man, I think you've covered that really well. So th this re report is out on the Sexual Abuse Task Force. It mm -hmm. came out. On Sunday afternoon, the 22nd, a uh, list of churches, which was, I think, most everything on there was public information anyway, um, right. came out shortly thereafter. How will you lead if elected as president and the response to the sexual abuse task force report? Well, I mean, there will be some proposals. They were just, some were just released today. I've only had a chance to read through it once from the actual task force. So you've got the guidepost, 288-page um, report with their proposals, some of which I think are draconian, though some of them are, are not bad. You know, some of them we ought to look at and probably could implement to a degree. Uh, but one of the things I'm deeply concerned about is that uh, we may be looking at bureau more bureaucracy to solve problems created by bureaucracy. And that's not the that's not the root problem. If our churches were what we ought to be, if we were doing what Christ has called the churches of the convention to be and do, then a lot of these problems would be handled at the church level. And what we're hearing is, oh, but that didn't happen. So we need a, now we need a, a standing committee and we need to set aside $3 million of cooperative program gifts in order to set up a special fund uh, to reform the sex abuse uh, response. Um, look, I, the sex abuse is a hard topic to talk about. It's affected my family personally. It's affected our church. Uh, all of us have stories, and so I, I don't. I don't. I want to honor that and recognize it's horrible in one person. Anytime it happens, it's horrible. But we need to make sure that we make decisions based upon accurate data. What What is the data? What What are we looking at here? We got forty seven thousand churches. Uh, we've looked over a twenty year period, and all of that needs to be considered as we come to terms with what the stats, what what the data actually tell us, and then more importantly we got to go back to scripture. It's not like we're the first generation that has had these problems or problems this serious. Uh, this has been going on from the beginning of time. And we see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. And so we should be willing to look at scriptures. One of the disconcerting things to me today as I read over the task force report and their recommendations is there's not one hint of Bible anywhere. And I, I, I thought maybe I missed it. I asked some people. And I've had some other people say, no, we read it too. And again, I'm not suggesting the task force doesn't believe the Bible. I know they do. That's not the issue. The issue is, are we being rigorously biblical enough in our thinking through solutions to problems? 
Or are we saying we got problems? Let's look to the world to give us answers on how we are to respond. That's dangerous. It's very dangerous, especially given the cultural moment that we're in because of these ideologies that I referred to earlier. So I don't know. I mean, if they're, the, the convention will make some decisions, I'm sure, in Anaheim that will direct the president, the next president, what to do. But one thing I will continue to do is keep trying to call Southern Baptists back to the, the, the basic fundamental reality that we all agree on. But if we're not careful, we can assume it. And in assuming it, we will lose it. And that is that we have a book. We, God's given us a Bible. And we ought to read the Bible. We ought to try to understand where the Bible speaks to the issues that we're confronting. And then let's think through uh, how do we how do we apply Scripture here in helpful ways? And I do believe I genuinely believe this, Todd, that if our churches would get honest with God and if, if pastors like me, and I indict myself in this. We need to come to terms with fearing God. I, we need to get on our knees and realize, Lord, we, we have sinned against you. We've not been what you've called us to do. I mean, we're, we believe in regenerate church membership. That's what we say, at least in Baptist faith and message. Baptists have always said that. We believe in church discipline. And yet, how many Southern Baptists have ever lived through a corrective church discipline case in their congregations? I dare say the overwhelming majority have not. It's, it's painful to go through, but it's right. It's healthy. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And how can we love each other if we're not helping each other to be accountable to the discipleship that we have in, in following Jesus Christ? If our churches would be humbled and repentant and restored to more biblical ecclesiology, I think that's the foundation on which we can begin to deal with some of these very difficult, delicate, painful problems in a God-honoring biblical way. So all of that, I've been saying this for decades, it's not new. I would just want to try to highlight it and help pastors, fellow pastors, to think through what does this mean practically? What must we do if we're going to honor Jesus Christ as head of this church? And then from that, we can look at the specifics of maybe uh, best practices or ways that we can uh, uh, get training and recognize patterns and things like that. We, we can use all the help we can get on that. Tom, shepherds take care of sheep, don't they? That's 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 the, that's the job description, and, and they're sure going to try to guard sheep from a predator and trying to recognize Amen. the traits of a predator and how they'll try to get in and, and um, find refuge in a church. It's going to be important. So uh, oftentimes, as you know, there are disagreements in the SBC. Life leaders don't see eye to eye on everything, and sometimes those disagreements are played out on social media. Do you see that as a concern, and uh, why or why not, and what guidance do you have for handling your your honest, honest dialogue disagreements yeah. on in a public platform? Yeah, you know, social media, uh, it needs to be demystified, and we've had to do this in our own church years ago. We were trying to sort it out because when it was new, people would get on there, and they'd, they'd say and do things, and they say, well, that's my wall, or that's my space. You can't tell me what to say, and and where we finally, as leaders, came up with a, a, an approach, we said, look, if you put something up on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, we're going to treat it just like you're standing on the street corner saying it and doing it. So, you know, if you put up uh, scantily clad pictures of yourself, it's just like you're doing it on the street corner. If you curse, it's just like you're doing it on the street corner. Uh, there's no, we're not mystifying, we're demystifying social media. And that's given us clarity and try to helping shepherd our people. Uh, sometimes I think that uh, keyboard warriors feel like I can say whatever I want to, you know, behind Twitter and then uh, go to church and sing the hymns of praise and, you know, we're one in the bond of love. Uh, 
I, I just, again, I think it, it's a spiritual issue. Um, we're all going to give an account for every idle word that we say and type. And uh, if we could recover that, it, it would chasten how we speak. Now, having said that, I think social media, like any other tool, it can be used for evil or used for good. And I think it's been used for a lot of good because it has given opportunity for conversations, kind of like the old town square, you know, or the barbershop, you know, you used to go and sit and talk and, and uh, there's good that can come from that. Conversations probably wouldn't happen any other way. And I see the rancor and I'm sure I've been guilty of it too. I'm not suggesting that I'm, I'm sinless in this at all. I, I asked people to call me out. I've got people that don't agree with me. I said, look, if you ever see me sinning, man, you call me out because I need help in this. I don't want to do that. But overall, the way I look at it is it's G Jesus said that it's what's in the heart that comes out of a man. And so whatever I put up on Twitter or put up on Facebook, if I look at it a year from now and say, oh, man, that was wicked. You know, I didn't mean that. Well, no, I did mean it. And it's sad. It's still wicked. Uh, and I need to repent of it because that came from inside of me. So all the stuff we see on Twitter, I think, is probably a more careful barometer of the spiritual condition of people than what we see on Sunday mornings. I think that's very, very fair. And it uh, goes back to your uh, little or no fear of God statement yeah. pre previously. All right. So you mentioned the cooperative program a couple of times, Tom. Uh, so yeah. what is the cooperative program and why is it important? Yeah, it's an ingenious way of funding what we do together. Uh, you know, you don't have missionaries or workers going have church to church trying to uh, do deputation work to get enough money to stay on the field, to go back on the field. It's ingenious when it's being stewarded well. And again, part of my concern now is with trust being uh, as fragile as it always is and being fractured somewhat, at least from the people I talk to. Um, the cooperative program is put at risk. And so I think the best, you know, the cooperative program is just a, it's that mechanism whereby we voluntarily give in order to support these wonderful things that we can do together far better than we could do individually as uh, independent autonomous churches. And so it's ingenious, but it will only thrive where trust is receiving the proper care that it needs. And, and I, I think that's one of the things we got to do if we want to strengthen the cooperative program is strengthen trust. So you've mentioned, you've mentioned trust a couple of times. And I think you've even indicated on some ways that trust could be rebuilt and maybe strengthened. Um, what else, what else is important in having a trust relationship between those who steward the resources that are, that are entrusted to them? I'm, I'm in that seat in Kentucky uh, mm -hmm. as well as, North American Mission Board President, International Mission Board, uh, ERLC, EC, seminary leaders. Um, what, what's important in those relationships? How can we strengthen trust where folks say, I feel good about sending dollars to the cooperative program? What can we do? Well, I think a forensic audit of all of the entities and institutions would be a baseline. Can you explain that a little bit? I think it's an, in, an interesting thought. So explain a forensic audit. What is that? What would that look like in terms of if, you're, if we're going to do one on Kentucky Baptist Convention, what would that look like? Yeah, you bring in a qualified and certified auditors that look to make sure that your uh, financial operations are consistent with what your policies are and what the laws of your state are. And just to see if you're doing what you say you do. And I believe all of our institutions and agencies want to do that. But I also know uh, how inertia sets in sometimes. And you can maybe take a shortcut or do something that works and it's not that big a deal. 
And 10 years later, it's a far bigger deal that nobody would ever have jumped into. But 10 years prior, it was a little deal. No big, no, and our laws changed. So it's looking not just at best practices, but actual uh, requirements from the governing authorities of the documents that the institution says it operates by and the, uh, the uh, municipalities in which it does operate legally. And you open the books and look at it, lay everything out. And oftentimes there are things found in a forensic audit and it's, it's not criminal. It might be wrong. They say, look, you just got to change this. So good. Okay. We change it. But now you got the force of law behind it. So it's not like, Hey, this isn't the very best idea. We've been doing this for 10 years. You know, you don't get that out on a forensic audit. Tom, have you, are you familiar with an organization that has done that? And you don't have to mention a name, but are you familiar with it being used somewhere and kind of what happened and how it worked and what was discovered? Yeah, just one. And, uh, you know, it was needed. It was desperately needed. And, and there was a lot of things discovered that weren't uh, helpful, but they were they were mitigated. They were resolved. And because yeah. everybody had good intentions, you know, everybody had the, the, the best interest of the institution at heart. And so it was resolved. It wasn't painless, but it was resolved. And it can be. And going forward, then, okay, you've got a baseline and, and everybody gets on the same page. And the people who are investing in that get a sense of, okay, now, you know, we, we, we see now the books have been open and we have some assurances we didn't have before that things are being done well. And even things that were maybe not done well, it wasn't from any kind of uh, malevolent. Um, yeah, malicious bad. intent. Yeah, malevolent. Yeah, I lost word. Yeah, it wasn't, wasn't bad motives. It was just, um, you know, the practices that developed over time that weren't healthy. Well, I'm certain that, you know, all of our entities do a, do a financial audit. We do a financial audit every year. Uh, we report to a business finance committee. Our agencies and institutions in Kentucky also conduct a, an accounting audit. And they're watching best practices. They're keeping an eye also on that, that um, old percentages of programs to fix costs, that that's at a healthy place. So they're doing some good work. But I guess a forensic audit then would take the, would take the, connect the spending to the mission, if I understand you, what you're saying right, mm -hmm. that is the spending consistent with the mission of the organization. Is that? Yeah, yeah the mission, the documents, governing documents, as well as the organization and the municipality is my understanding. Okay, well, great. Thank you for that. So um, if you're elected president, how would you promote the cooperative program? <laughs> I would do what I could to rebuild trust. You know, I, I think the best thing that we can do to promote the cooperative program is to get all of our entities and agencies to be transparent, to okay. be willing to stand before the churches and say, come look at us. You look at anything, you own this institution, and we want you to feel good about investing in this institution. Because Southern Baptists are doing a lot of great things. We're doing a lot of great things. And it's, uh, it's not... It's just not helpful when many of the good things we are doing suffer because of question marks that could be easily erased through transparency. So if a, if a SPC messenger questions the transparency of an entity, what, what is their recourse? What can they, how would you advise that person? Someone reached out to you and said, Tom, I have a real concern with whatever and, and financial transparency. How would you advise them to get their issue settled or engage it? Well, well, what should happen is you ought to be able to talk to uh, trustees. You know, you ought to be able to talk. If you have representative trustees from your state at large, then just make a phone call and say, hey, you know, I've, I've got concerns about this and see if they could help you. Again, I mean, I've done that. So I've, I've talked to some trustees yep. that have just said, look, 
you're <laughs> you're putting your nose where it doesn't belong, you know, which is kind of strange to me. I pastor a Southern Baptist church that pays your salary, but nevertheless, um, that, that's that's the way it ought to work, and that's where I think we just got some things that have broken down over the years, and we just need to come to grips with the fact: okay, we can do better. Let's back up. Let's shine some light. Uh, we're not trying to kill each other. We're really wanting to cooperate together. So let's get everything on the table and let's move forward in a, a more transparent way. I, I think that it's the trustee system, when it's working, should facilitate that. And then, Tom, if the trustee system doesn't work, we have a great thing every year called an annual meeting. And, and messengers have shown their willingness to stand up and speak up when they're dissatisfied with the, with, with the matter. That's right. And, and, you know, quite honestly, I think that that's about 90 percent of why folks have uh, persuaded me to run for president this year. Yeah. So um, your church is a cooperative program supporting church. You've made that plain in, 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 in any documents that you've released. So how do you as a pastor, how do you defend the cooperative program when folks are saying, Tom, this is going on and this is going on? Why shouldn't we just be spending this money on our own missionaries or spending it locally or doing whatever? What, how do you answer that as a as a pastor? Well, everything I've said previously about that, I've, I've said, and again, we've sent missionaries. We sent three different families and two different individuals uh, through IMB connections. And so we've seen it. And you know, one of those families that was in a, a Muslim uh, nation, again, shortly after they got on the field, there was an uh, attempted assassination on uh, a political leader. And protocols kicked into place and our people had a safe house to go to. They had bug out bags. I mean, it was amazing. And I've been over there. I've, I've been in the country. And so we know that, you know, we've seen it happen. We see the benefit of it, but those questions, quite honestly, they get a little dicey. Uh, you know, people bring stories and some of the stories are true or you can't refute them. The facts are there. Um, and what I've tried to say is, look, you know, this, this is worth contending for. This is worth making better. Let's don't just walk away. Let's don't just throw it away. Let's fix it. By God's grace, let's fix it. You know, we're, we're living in an imperfect world. There's no utopia. We're not going to be able to eliminate every problem in every situation. But by God's grace, we can get things on a healthier footing. And let's work hard to do that. Let's cooperate with other Southern Baptist churches and do that and, and see this good mechanism continue to be used for great good in generations to come. Yeah, I think that's fair. Well, thank you for all the answers so far. So we're just going to ask some fun questions now. What what books are you currently reading? You've got a whole plethora <laughs> of books back there behind you. I can see a couple of them by name earlier. What are you, what are you reading right now? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm rereading for the first time in 35 years, maybe. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, Augustine's uh, City of God. Wow. And it's, yeah, it's interesting. I'm on uh, book 14 today. And I, <laughs> I'll, I'll spare it. But he's sarcastic. I mean, I I'm listening to it as well as reading it. And listening to it, you hear, you hear sarcasm in ways I just never picked up before. Hmm. But uh, this morning reading, he was talking about how, you know, before sin, uh, God still had mechanisms for procreation that wouldn't have involved any kind of concupiscence or lust or anything like that. And he said, because you can control your, your body in ways that uh, are submission to your will without the emotions. And he's going through all of this thing. You can, a, a fella can wiggle his ears. A fella can make his hair flop back and forth, you know, uh, and, and, and other things are a little bit funnier than that. So I'm reading Augustine. I love him. He's, he's helpful. I'm reading a new book. It's just come out by uh, Yoram Hazoni called conservatism a rediscovery and i've just gotten into it and it is 
excellent. It's a gr- very well written. And he's arguing against uh, liberalism. Classic liberalism is kind of the, the, the foundation of our nation. He says, no, 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 no. There's, there's far more at stake here, something we need to think about uh, from a different angle. So, I'm, again, I'm just getting into it, but it's, uh, it's a page turner. Do you listen and read at the same time? I do. Yeah. I mean, what I'll do is I'll listen and I have the book and then I'll go and I'll read. Yeah. Uh, so I read ahead and listen. So it's been, I've started doing that probably the last five or six years. It's been, been helpful. Does it help you retain more? It does. And there's some books I will only listen to, you know, that I, I can do that when I'm doing other stuff and I don't have to yeah. underline or pay attention to things. But uh, like with the city of God, I've got it, I'm reading it and I'm listening to it. And this morning, my wife and I were listening together and, and we just busted out laughing at one of his examples. And so I had to get to my study and get the book open in the market. And I sent it out to some, I actually I sent it out to my son and son's-in-law. And uh, they, they all had a good, good laugh on it because uh, I said, hey, we could start an Augustinian choir here based upon what uh, Augustine <laughs> Well, said I mean, Augustine tried to start, didn't he try to start like a, what, like a men's club or something? That uh, It seems like I remember in Confessions, there was some kind of a, anyway, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm digressing. Um so on, uh, I was going to ask you a question about, oh, do you read fiction as well as nonfiction? You know, I do. I haven't read uh, a lot in the last couple of years, but I used to be a big Grisham, John Grisham uh, guy. And yeah, uh, yeah I, I like the, the legal theory kind of stuff. And then uh, Clancy, you know, I, I haven't don't read a lot of Clancy, but he's got so many plots and subplots, you know, that if you don't read it straight through, I, I get lost. I have to go back and start over. But, uh, yeah, I enjoy fiction. I just haven't read a lot of it lately. Uh, you know, television's a mess, but there are some shows you can watch that are kind of a cleaned-up version of, of shows or even some filters. Do you watch any television? Do you, do you, you know, we – yeah, not much. Uh, we we got onto uh, BritBox uh, mm-hmm. a year or so ago, so we watched some Foils War. You know, mm-hmm. it's a story uh, based on World War II and police officer and uh, Endeavor. We've watched uh, – I'm going to get the name wrong and my wife's going to laugh at me when I go home, but it's like uh, Clark's rise to Candleford or Candleford or something yeah. like that. I know I didn't get it right. If you, that's okay. I won't know the difference. So you're, you're, you're <laughs> my wife will. That's the problem. <laughs> she will. And if she listens to this, I know I'll be in trouble. <laughs> so Tom, you're busy. I mean, you're, you're pastoring a, a, a church. You have a large family. Um, you, you read, you, you know, you're studying for sermons. If you have downtime, fun time, what do you like to do for fun? What's what's fun for you beside those? Like I'm sure those things are fun, but what else? Yeah, I love to hunt. Really? Uh, I love to hunt. Yeah, I don't get to do much of it. In fact, I just put in for a draw last night to uh, go bow hunting for a Wyoming antelope. And my son put in too. So if we get drawn, which is pretty slim, but if God does that, then uh, we'll get to share uh, a hunt together for the first time. That'll be a lot of fun. That's fun. Do you have any Kentucky connections? You know, um, I've got uh, Jim Ork is a pastor in Kentucky, yep. and I'm, I know some other pastors there. Jim's a hunter, too, is why his name jumped out to me. He's actually invited me to go with him. I've never been able to do it, but he has a little cabin out in the middle of nowhere and doesn't even get cell service, so I'm really looking forward to uh, taking him up on that one day. Well, your IMB president is a big-time hunter, and he hunts anything that uh, anything that moves, and uh, he's right? even a snake handler. I don't know if you saw that on on um, no. Twitter recently, the kind of snake handler that, that tries to relocate snakes, not the yeah, gun, yeah. not the church I'm gun. not that, 
I'm not that kind of Baptist, so. Uh, you and me both. Only good snakes are dead snake. I don't care. That's I don't right. care what benefit a snake brings. There's something else that can bring that same benefit. Tom, yeah. who's a leader that you've enjoyed spending time with that you've learned something uh, something from? What do you, and what do you observe them doing well? Yeah, well, you know, a lot of people, I guess, have different definitions of leadership. But uh, Tom Nettles has been a leader in the classroom and in the academy. And um, I've learned so much from Dr. Nettles, Tom. He's a friend now. Uh, I was a student, and he was so kind and patient with me to teach me when I didn't know enough uh, what I was doing. I showed up at seminary. It was 1979 in May. So it's just before the Houston Convention when Adrian Rogers is going to run to begin the conservative resurgence. Was was that Southwestern? Southwestern, yeah, Southwestern. So uh, was he was Southwestern. Was he at Mid America? No, he hadn't gone to Mid America yet. Okay. He started at Southwestern, and after six years, he went to Mid Mid America. But uh, uh, I've been listening to a professor, a history professor, actually, as an interim pastor at the church where my wife and I were married. I was pastor in a little church, didn't have a Sunday night service, and every Sunday night during that spring, he was talking about these fundamentalists are going to try to take over the seminary, and if they do, it'll it'll shut down. I'll be fired. All my colleagues will be fired. And so, man, I'm, I'm, I'm fired up, you know, so I, I show up at Southwestern and about the second day of class in that summer course in May, I go up to him in his office. I said, Dr. Nettles, I want you to know, I, I know what's going on. I'm going to take 10 messengers to Houston. We're going to vote against Adrian Rogers. We're not going to let them shut you, this seminary down and fire you. And so Tom kind of cocks his head, looks at me, says, who you been talking to? <laughs> so I told him. So he gets up from his desk. He walks around, closes the door, goes back. And that began my theological education. You know, he wow. began to set me straight. And I did vote for Adrian Rogers. But I've learned from Tom um, how to take criticism, and how, how to uh, be gracious, how to get along with people that you disagree with, even strongly disagree with, how to treat people better than they deserve to be treated. Uh, he, he's done that with me. And I haven't learned it as well as I hope to, but I've just... At every stage of his life, I've seen him uh, do things. He was horribly treated sometimes uh, in the academy, and yep. yet he he did not revile in return. I mean, he he taught me Christ likeness under fire, uh, and to to develop his craft with excellence. He's he's been a a true student. He's still right now, seventy five years old. He's a student. You know, I talked to him yesterday or the day before, and he's studying, he's reading, he's learning, and and so man, I admire all of that. I, I hope to to learn more from him and his example. Dr. Nettles was my uh, church history professor at Southern. I may have had two church histories. I may have had him for both. Um, he would start class oftentimes with a long poem. You know, there's trouble in River City. He'd, do, he'd act out or he'd sing a hymn and just sing the hymn all the yeah. way through or quote a large portion of, of uh, scripture. i never forget he told about being in his home one day. And um, um, it may have been a Methodist pastor that came by and was knocking on doors to share the gospel. And he was so encouraged that, that another pastor was out there sharing the good news. And um, I, I appreciate I appreciate Dr. Nettles. Tom, you may have seen this. So um, Southwestern Seminary hired a couple of worship professors. Um, I think they're both from Kentucky. And folks were critical about one of them or maybe both of them on social media. And Tom wrote a paper defending um, one of those, I think both those worship leaders and just let folks know you don't you don't have the story straight on on um, on what you're what you're saying here. I, I appreciate his, his yeah, he does that. That's that's classic Tom Nettles right there. Yep. You know, I've often said, man, if I'm if I have to be uh, rebuked, criticized, corrected, please let it be at the hands of Tom Nettles. <laughs> <laughs> I just cower my head when it, because he's bound to be right, whatever he says. 
<laughs> Tom, best ministry advice that you've ever received and tried to apply to your ministry? Oh, boy. You know, two things. Uh, Adrian Rogers said one time in my hearing, don't try to manage the spiritual and don't try to spiritualize the manageable. And he, he's talking about is if you're supposed to show up at eight o'clock to be at work at eight o'clock, be at eight o'clock. Don't say, well, I had my quiet time went long, you know, or the Lord was really meeting with me. So I'm at eight fifteen. He says, don't try to manage the spiritual or spiritualize the manageable. But on the other hand, too, you need the spirit. So you can't manufacture that. You got to rely on the spirit. And if the spirit's not empowering you, don't don't try to pump it up you know, with something else. That's been really helpful. But another one, if I could go with two, is uh, James Boyce, the late James Montgomery Boyce. He said this for the first time in my hearing. Then he put it in a book. I think it was in a preface of a book he wrote, and I can't remember which one, that we tend to overestimate what God will do in two years and underestimate what he will do in 20. Hmm. And boy, has that proven true uh, in my life and ministry. So that, yeah. those are good pieces of advice I hang on to. He was one of my favorite preachers. I used to listen to him at the Christian radio station. Was it 10th Presbyterian? Is that where he? Yeah, 10th Pres, yeah. Oh, man, just listen to him every, every chance. So incredible, incredible preacher, but take complicated matters and make and simplify them easy to understand. Tom, right. um, if you were going to speak to Kentucky Baptists, some, several will listen to our, our conversation here. Why should uh, the ones that go out to Anaheim, why should they consider you for this role, and, and uh, why should they vote for you? Well, I really do believe that uh, we've got some serious challenges in front of us. I think we've got some problems, and they can be fixed. I don't think it's you know terminal. I really don't. If I did, I, I wouldn't do this. I think it can be fixed, but they're not going to be fixed by papering over reality. We're going to have to face reality with the full confidence that we have a crucified, risen Savior. Our God raises the dead. And so we ought to be full of confidence. I've got friends that aren't Southern Baptists. You know, of course, everybody's been preaching Southern Baptist Convention's funeral for years. And uh, they say, you know, you're on a fool's errand. You're on a fool. You really think things can change? I said, well, of course I do. Our God raises dead people. You know, he raises people from the dead. And so I, I believe that. And I'm willing to, with that confidence, try to look honestly at reality. I, I'm not willing to close my eyes to any problems, but nor am I willing to let the problems overrule all the good things and say, oh, well, all we've got is problems. Everything just needs to be burned to the ground. Yeah. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. So I, I have hope that God can still use this convention, this association, this voluntary organization of churches for great good in the kingdom. And, and I want to see that happen. So I, I don't think it's going to happen the way that I believe it can and should happen without honesty, without transparency, without some of these things that you and I've talked about. And, you know, this is not news to anybody who's listened to me for years. Uh, and if God puts me in the position, I know it's limited. The president really can't do a lot of things officially. But I would hope to, to leverage whatever opportunities I have to plead with my fellow Southern Baptists, especially those that are in the institutions and entities that have been entrusted with leadership there, Let's deal with these things. Let's listen to our churches. Let's serve our churches. And then to say to my fellow pastors, brothers, look, we're going to give an account. You know, some of us before too long, we're going to give an account standing before God. Let's humble ourselves and encourage one another to seek the Lord, pray for reformation, revival. If God's spirit were to come down, we don't have one problem the SBC is facing that would not be solved with a return to a genuine fear of God. I really believe that. So, you know, if a, if a president like that you think would serve well, 
then, you know, I, I would appreciate your vote. Uh, I don't have much else to offer than that, but I, I do have that. Tom, thank you, brother. Thank you for your ministry at, at your church in Florida, and thank you for your willingness to be considered a candidate for SBC president. Thank you for joining Leadership Lessons. It's much, much appreciated. Yeah, thank you, Todd. Thanks for listening to Leadership Lessons. This program is made possible by the generous contributions by Kentucky Baptist through the cooperative program. For more information about the Kentucky Baptist Convention, go to kybaptist.org. And for news about how Kentucky Baptist churches are making a difference, go to kentuckytoday.com.